This is Ravel, a roundtable show about the complexity of faith in the age of information. My name's Josh. I'm Steven. And I'm Emily. We each grew up in different parts of American Christianity, and we still keep thinking about how to take it seriously, even as we leave some beliefs behind. We think theology should be an exploratory dialogue, so our hope is that the show will encourage growth, both for individuals and communities. We don't have all the answers, but we're here to sort out as much as we can over a drink or two. Join us as we ravel out our faith in a complex world, pulling on one thread at a time, seeking meaning at the end of it all. Thanks for listening. Well, in, in that case... Oh, love that sound on a podcast. Uh, yeah. I love that taste on a podcast. That's that's delicious. Are you guys drinking anything? I'm drinking a big bottle of water. <laughs> Excellent. I'm really boring tonight. Hydrate or dehydrate. You know, I went camping this last weekend and I wasn't underhydrated, but like in the car, I was conscious of the fact that I didn't drink as much as I normally do. Mm, you know, yeah. I like to overhydrate personally. I drink like four or five liters of water a day. That's incredible. Like a gallon or I so. Don't drink that much. Yeah. I aim for a gallon. I hardly get there. Emily, are you drinking anything interesting? I made a fresh batch of Southern sweet tea just moments before hopping on to record. So that is what I am enjoying tonight. Oh, Oh, excellent. That sounds heavenly. I'm so into it. It is great. That does sound good. It's It's a Mr. Coffee iced tea maker. My mom had it. And she never used it. And so when Alex and I moved into the parsonage, she was like, here's a housewarming gift. Enjoy some iced tea. And I was like, thank God. <laughs> Delicious. <laughs> I'm drinking uh, uh, an IPA from Thirsty Street in Billings. So Whoa. I'm pretty happy about that. Whoa. What do you do? Like import this yeah. or what? Excellent choice. What's that, Steve? How do you get it there? Import? You have someone like mail it to you? Well, or? Yeah, I yeah, Smuggle I had someone you? get it for me. It's it's canned. Oh, and nice. And it's my last two. I got it like forever ago. Oh. But it's my last two. I didn't know Thirsty Street canned or bottled. I thought they were all just on tap they local. Do. Wow. They do both now. Good to know. I don't know how That's extensively neat. they ship it out, but yeah. Hmm. Okay. Well, we are here with episode two. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Episode if you're two. if you're hopping in on we episode two, you made it through episode one. Which, man, I talked a lot, you guys. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. It's okay. We'll, uh, we'll rein you in in the future, but we had to let you run for a second. <laughs> I had to get some stuff off my chest, right? <laughs> oh, man. But we're here on episode two. We're going to do something. Uh, I mean, we don't really have a norm to break yet, but we're going to do something that's going to be out of the ordinary for like episodes moving into the future. And we are going to air a conversation that Emily and I had during our No Normal People podcast um, interview recording. And I just, because I had a good friend who was newly ordained as a reverend pastor, I just started picking her brain with so many questions about theology, especially the differences in the theology that she was raised and trained in, uh, being you know, in the Methodist tradition. And I grew up in the very much Calvinist, evangelical Baptist kind of world. So doing a lot of comparing and contrasting was extremely fun for me, but it was a little off topic for what no normal people is designed to be. And 
this was the conversation that inspired essentially the entire Ravel idea. Like maybe we could like start a podcast together because we had so much fun talking and I've been looking for an excuse for Josh to join me in podcasting as well. So what if the three of us talk theology and then we just use this audio as kind of a a launching point, unofficially calling this the conversation that started it all. What do you guys think? And here we are uh, just shy of two months later. I know, right? Which is kind of crazy. So I just listened to this again the other day, and this was for the second time. And I'm really excited about this. If you guys are listening and you haven't checked out Stephen's other show, No Normal People, I definitely recommend checking it out. I've listened from the beginning. It's really cool what he's doing with it. And also, if you're coming to us from No Normal People, this like footage that you're about to listen to Stephen literally cut out an hour from his conversation with Emily. Like, that's how long... Their their episode was already pretty long, like, just talking about her. Yeah. But this is, like, a whole nother hour that he didn't include. So this is pretty exciting, <laughs> there, I There think. is no shortage of theology conversation in the episode that ended up airing for No Normal People because I thought it was valuable. Yeah. <laughs> um, but... Like, <laughs> some of the digressions I take Emily on in this uh, in this audio we're about to play were just so off. There's a lot. <laughs> there's so a lot. Much. There's. I noticed that there's a lot that you guys like barely skim the surface on. You yep. guys also both like name drop quite a few people, <laughs> and I I knew quite a few of them, and even still, I was like, oh, I there, there's so much here that like we're not talking about, and there is even though you're like talking about quite a bit. Oh <laughs> uh, well, yeah. That's so, that's so good. I'm, I'm excited to put this on here. I think this is I think this is absolutely the conversation that started it all. So. The conversation that started it this all. Is, this is good. It definitely is. Yeah, for sure. So what we're going to do is uh, w- this audio has been produced already. I made it available for Josh and Emily to listen to again. So what we're going to do is play that audio now here in the Ravel feed in this episode. And then we're going to come back at the end of that audio And Josh has kind of put together some notes. Maybe he has things to comment on or things to ask us, like if we can remember what our train of thought was. So we'll just kind of do a debrief after the episode so we can include Josh in on the conversation that started it all. That will be episode two. goodness this is so good i okay i want to talk about you mentioned something about imperfect people and i want to talk about the theology you grew up with and the theology you hold as a methodist pastor now um of course we can recognize sin as sin and of course we can recognize that um man will sometimes work against the dignity of his fellow man and even of himself and degrade Mm -hmm. intentionally choose to degrade the image of god in a brother and sister or or in himself. So that, that is my like base level. Can we agree that that's what sin is? Um, Mm -hmm. like this, it's, it's a wound on our spirit and it's a wound on our soul. And this is what Jesus came to redeem from death for us so that we could Mm -hmm. find a life of healing. How far does the definition of sin go in Methodism? Because I grew up, um, you know, if we're going to keep going back to Calvinism, I grew up with the tea and tulip being total depravity. Um, mm-hmm. what is, what is the theology in Methodism around sin, around perfection? Um, does it go so far as total depravity or is there some weird gray space that Methodism likes to sit? Um, that's actually a really good question because 
Methodism in itself has faced a lot of struggle in how they define things. And that actually, that in issues of racism and sexism Mm -hmm. was part of why Methodism is the way it is today. Why there Mm -hmm. are so many splits. You have the AME church and the CME church. um, And then you have the Methodist church. Yeah, okay. And it's interesting because when we think of original sin or sin, just even in itself, I think about John Wesley's sermon. Um, And he actually had several discourses regarding sin and what that is. And Wesley, and I sort of hold true to this, that Wesley makes it clear that human nature has been so corrupted, Mm -hmm. just so deprived that there was no possibility of any goodness at all in ourselves that Mm -hmm. we could do for ourselves. And so God had to come and intervene. God's grace had to come and be established. And while I mostly agree with that, I Mm -hmm. think sin is something that is also chosen and it's something that is unavoidable. Mm -hmm. It's something that we, for as long as society has been established has just been a part. And I don't think it was something that God intended. I don't think it was something that, you know, God's this puppet master where God's up above kind of pulling the strings and making things happen. So then God had to intervene. Mm -hmm. That's not at all what happened. Sure. I think it was, there's something about this free will and this choice that we have that we can't fully understand how it snowballed into sin, how it has grown and has taken many forms that is what it is now. Mm-hmm. And I would say that many people kind of debate about sin in itself. You know, are you born evil? Are you born good? And then you become evil. Is evil the right word? Like, what is the word that you use? And I personally don't like the word evil or good. I think those are two, they're too binary of words to capture how we are born and established here on earth. Hmm. Like, what does it mean to be good? How are you defining good? What is it that is the essence of good? Because my definition of good may not be the same as, you know, the person to the left or the right of me. Sure. And John Wesley's sermons really tackle that, I think, of understanding that that, that's not the point. Like, the point is, is that God's intervening because it's so different. Hmm. Everyone has such a different experience of sin, and that's why God is God. God is, we can't fully understand it, and so God's grace is what is enough. And sin is one of those things that, I uh, like the Holy Spirit, I think we don't really want to talk about it. We really want to talk about you know, the Easter morning, the Jesus mm. is risen, you know, mm. and we get to we get to Good Friday and we don't really want to talk about it. We don't want to talk about why that's there. Like, why is that happening? Oh, right. Because of sin. That's something that kind of makes us feel guilty. Um, we really want to stay in the Easter Sunday moment of he is risen and feel the joy of that we're saved. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something I kind of want to tackle in my appointment here at Cody is... When it comes to Easter season, I really want to sit in the Good Friday. I want to sit in trying to understand, like, what have we been doing in our lives that, you know, caused 
us to have this this holiday, to have this moment mm. of celebration, you mm. know, because it's a reoccurring thing. It, you know, we're not literally celebrating Jesus dying on the cross over and over and over and over again. What we're right. what we're doing and what we're celebrating is the actions and the momentum that has started since then and how it's still happening today. Who's now being crucified? You know, who is going to be risen? Who is it then that we are going to be seeing in ourselves? Because we ourselves have to go through a type of crucifix. We ourselves have to bear the cross and really come to terms with what does it mean to carry the cross? What does it mean to be resurrected? Because that's a constant process. And I think God is just as much a part of that as you know, God was when Jesus died on the cross originally. Wow. I, I should ask more questions. Uh, we should just go for a few more hours and I'll just keep asking questions and you, you, you get to preach <laughs> sure, some more because I'm so, <laughs> I'm, I'm so into this. <sighs> thank you. Thank you for covering that because like, I think my, my, my struggle with, with sin over the last few years and like, I'm so glad you got into what actually good Friday is meant to be. Like, I think mm-hmm. it is too easy to be all over Easter and kind of ignore the fact that good Friday, like Easter was only possible, um, mm-hmm. by the fact that good Friday exists. And I think the, the invitation of the cross there is that we must recognize the sin in ourselves and that, um, you know, with, with Jesus's arms outstretched, uh, nailed to the cross, he's inviting us to sin his, or he's inviting us to sin our sins into him so that they may die with him. So that when he rises, they're left in the tomb behind. Like, again, this is, this is a much more expansive and inclusive and exciting gospel that we, that we are sharing here as opposed to like what I felt like I was growing up with, which again was a very individual, it was kind of a, uh, this might be a straw man argument for penal substitution atonement, but it, Mm. there, there was, there was some language that was always, that was getting bandied about that made me uncomfortable because it felt like Jesus was just, uh, the, the venturer capitalist with an angel investment that was going to help our right. help our eternal accounting books get back into the black, um, right? So that so that God wouldn't hate us anymore. Um. So, uh, what about atonement theologies? What kind of atonement theology did you grow up um, experiencing, and what what do you subscribe to now? Um, maybe personally, and then also what, what kind of systematic, uh, atonement theology does Methodism hold if, if there can be a single one that it comes down to, you know? Yeah, for sure. I definitely, so there's many different theories of atonement. Um, you have the, the more, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? The more it's ransom. That's the word I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. So the yeah. ransom theory of atonement, which that was the one I I really grew up hearing. Um, mm. And it's not the most common theory that's preached in Methodism, but I think it's sort of the go to because it's probably the easiest to understand. OK, um, you have the Christus Victor, which is 
widely considered to be a dominant theory um, in many other Christian churches. Yes. And you also have the satisfaction theory, which if you like Anselm, that's the guy to read. He's fascinating. <laughs> Anselm of Canterbury is, whoo, he's okay. got some words to say. He, uh, his theory basically goes into that Jesus died as a way to satisfy the justice of God. Um, it was, you know, God was unsatisfied. So Jesus was the one to satisfy God. Okay. And what's interesting is my personal belief in atonement is I'm not sure. And that's something I wrestled mm. with in seminary. I took a class. Mm -hmm. I loved it. It was, um, oh, what was it called? Um, oh, idolatry in the New Testament. And what we explored wow. was the book of Isaiah and how those revelations from Isaiah has now been come to light in the New Testament and how Jesus was pointing back and saying, yo, Isaiah had it right, people. Like, this was so many years before your time and you're not getting the picture. Mm. And what I liked about that class was we had to write our own theory of atonement and I remember our professor was like, you don't have to have it complete. Just write something down, get some thoughts down. And so I took some pieces from Anselm and I took some pieces from, you know, the penal substitutionary theory of atonement. And I kind of put elements together. And ultimately, I haven't come up with a final solution. And that in itself, I think, is what I'm looking forward to the most is hearing, okay, so let's say you, let's say you like the penal substitutionary theory, mm -hmm. which is, you know, really part of the Reformation. Um, yes. You know, Luther and Calvin and all of them, they really took Anselm's words and kind of modified it mm -hmm. in a way in that framework of the cross and the result of Jesus dying to satisfy God um, in the place of sinners. So kind of taking both. Mm -hmm. I see that. Yes. And so, so is the substitution essentially putting an end to the the blood sacrifice system of the temple? Um, yes. In, in Jewish thought, and at the same time, it was it was um, fulfilling this uh, this sense of God's justice that was unsatisfied previously. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and it's cool because then you get the Christus Victor where. You know, Jesus died in order to defeat the powers of evil, and it was to free mankind of their bondage. So it was almost this, here's this guy on a white horse, silver shield and sword in hand kind of victory mm. sort of imagery of here's this person who has come to be our victor, someone who has come to be our savior to basically save and to be in victory over right. sin and death. Which is a very Eastern Orthodox uh, yes. theory. Okay. And yeah. And so it's almost like I kind of want to take elements of this and elements of that and, and put it together. And what I like is that you're able to do that. Mm -hmm. You don't have to just fall into one category. And I don't like how it's called a th atonement theory. I think yeah. it should just be called atonement ideas <laughs> oh, okay and you can then you can kind of make your own soup of atonement and you can take elements to have your own understanding because that's what faith is that's sure. your relationship with god is meant to be 
your relationship. So Mm -hmm. what is it that you have to believe in? What is it that you hold dear and wrestle with that? You know, question that and be like a muscle, like I said earlier, and just stretch constantly and develop new ideas and to explore new ideas uh, and see where it goes. Because there's no one answer, really. I heard a theologian, uh, I think it was Preston Sprinkle, describe atonement theories. And he also doesn't like the word theory. He ta- he calls them atonement hypotheses. Ooh. And uh, I, he described atonement hypotheses as a multifaceted diamond. And mm. so each face of the sparkling diamond is a different hypothesis that can be mapped onto just the, the multifaceted uh, because obviously like Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection wasn't just doing one of these things that so many wise people have had ideas about for 2000 years. Right. It's not just going to be one of these things, of course. Um, so we have so many different ideas and it, it does come down to at the core of it. It is a diamond. It is a beautiful, precious thing that we can hold and say like, Jesus did a lot here and uh, you know, maybe I don't necessarily like one idea over another, but at least we can all try and get to a point where we're having a conversation about the same diamond, right? Yeah. Right. (laughs) And it's there and it's knowing that in the end, like, is that what we're going to be arguing about Mm -hmm. is, is how this happened? Because, you know, some arguments that I've had, I shouldn't say arguments, I'll say uh, friendly debates sure. that I've had with some of my classmates is, so what if, what if Jesus didn't die? Would salvation have still occurred? Uh, you know, why mm. did it have to be the cross? Mm. What, what was it about that? Why was that the choice? And, you know, did Jesus even have to come in the first place? You know, why did God decide to come and experience human reality in this way Mm. why was god like why was jesus a man yeah you know why why was jesus you know born in a lowly place of bethlehem like there are so many elements to atonement that it is very multifaceted and eventually like you said like all the pieces just come together and it's there and we can agree that something whatever it is is there and how you choose to look at it how you choose to see it and interpret it is meant to be unique just sure. like a diamond yeah. is very unique no one diamond no one snowflake is the same yes uh do you mind if we have a conversation and maybe you can help me think out loud about the concept of divine justice or um you know the phrase god's justice as you mentioned before um mm-hmm. in in uh describing one of these theories i just recently had a conversation with a friend of mine who he and i grew up in the same youth group grew up grew up in the same church and uh we, we started having a conversation about uh, pretty much exactly this. Like what was the point of the cross? If not a, a sense of justice that needed to be satisfied. So, um, I wonder if you would help me kind of think out loud about this. Cause my sense of even the term justice has changed so much, um, mm. changed so much over the years. And, uh, you know, even in the language that you're using to describe some of these, some of these ideas, there's something in me that feels um, a little icky about the sense of like God wasn't satisfied with something. So he had to send his son who mm-hmm. we can also recognize as part of the Trinity. So it was like God had to send himself to be killed in order to be satisfied himself. Um, mm-hmm. And so my sense of justice is kind of mapping 
and maybe I'm doing this backwards, but my sense of God's justice is kind of mapping onto my new concepts of what social justice should be looking like in our country, especially with mm-hmm. very, very recent um, ignitions of the, the Black Lives Matter movement again. Yes. So what justice feels like to me, I'm reading the book by Brian Stevenson uh, called Just Mercy, and there's a movie on Netflix about oh, it, which is also yes. fantastic. And I'm finding that just the concept of justice for me is kind of evolving into more of a uh maybe like a a liberation theology over mm-hmm. over again kind of uh what i kind of maybe set up as like a the divine accounting books getting us from red to black um red to black again i my sense of justice is more of a release and more of a redemption right now in the work mm-hmm. that Christ did for us um, in his ministry on the cross. And uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm rambling now and I'm conscious of it. So I, I wonder if you could help, help me kind of think out loud here. What, what is your sense of God's justice and how, where do you think I'm going wrong or where do you think I'm going right here? Mm-hmm. And so well, first and foremost, I would say just knowing that you want to explore this, um, just know that I, I don't even think if there is a right or wrong. Uh, it's, mm. It is a those are those are human binary limits that we place on such an expansive topic. Yeah. Uh, and it's those types of questions that cause churches to split. It's caused you know, the Nicene Creed was formed because you had one person who thought one way of the Trinity and one who thought of another, and that caused a huge feud. Mm-hmm. So it's like, here we are, 2020. It's July 5th. Stephen Henning and Emily Reddinghouse are sitting here talking about divine justice. Uh, and what? Yeah, how do we wrap our mind around it? And so one of the things that comes to my mind is Divine justice in human consciousness and experience uh, destroys, and I don't know if I like the word destroys, but eliminates uh, sin and frees the individual and the community to mm-hmm. express their true nature as the Imago Dei, as God's spiritual likeness and image. Mm-hmm. And what's neat is you can take some ideas from other religions. Uh, so, you know, I think of divine justice in regards to Islam and their way of believing is that the day of judgment, they prove their faith and, you know, how they did based on their responsibility of their actions on earth. Uh, So it's almost like a, you know, justice to justify. So when I think of like social justice, we are trying to justify the needs of others Mm, mm -hmm. before ourselves. Uh, And I think of divine justice as God's way of justifying this is what has to happen. Uh, And I'm reminded of, I'm reminded of the prophets, you know, Ezekiel and Isaiah and, and so many others who were trying to talk to the people about, hey, like what we're doing is not okay. What is happening is, is not what God had intended. And so finally... God was like, okay, you know, if this is, if this is what's going to have to take place, so be it, but let's do it in a way that not only you can understand, 
but in a way that allows me to personally connect. Mm. Because for so long it was, you know, you had a, a medium person, you had a prophet who was talking to God, and then that prophet was talking to the people. And that's almost like what a pastor is, is we preach, we hear, and, you know, develop ideas from the gospel, and we share those to our congregation. Um, so we are, in a sense, a type of prophet. And God, I think, still does that. God still works through people and always will. But I think God finally got to the point where God was like, you know, I don't think they're getting it. And it's because it's this game of telephone. You know, it's mm. it's maybe something's just not getting through. Okay. Maybe maybe there's just something happening, whether it's societal or individual, that the concept is just not getting through the way it's supposed to, the way that God had intended. Sure. So what better way than to share the message yourself? And I think to do that, to say, I'm putting a self, I'm putting myself aside to take this form, this human form, mm -hmm. to try to get the point across to you, kind of opened up God a bit more to be in the space where God was learning. You know, God, I think, was starting to understand, oh, this is why you weren't getting it. This is, these are some of the things that were crowding your mind and kind of latching onto your spirit and getting in the way. So maybe the only way to do that then was to show if this is how you experience life, I'll experience it with you. And that's what, that to me is what Jesus was doing, was showing that God wanted to understand what was going on. Hmm. Uh, I see God in a way that's very relational. Um, yeah. You know, God is not this white bearded dude in the sky. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, Jesus wasn't white either, but that's a different topic. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, <laughs> right. Thank uh, you. We, uh, we are a people that need to hear and understand those voices that are not our own. Mm -hmm. And I think God was put into a place and in a society in a time where God was also like, oh, I'm hearing this now. Like, I, I get it. I get the picture because for so long, God was doing all the talking and, you know, God would hear, but there's a difference between hearing and listening and experiencing. Yeah. And so God was able to listen and to truly feel all that was happening. And so he, the God then was able to justify, to enact justice in the world. And it was through that human experience that we now understand it. And we too can have a, an experience of that unique nature of mm. God within us. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Those are just thoughts. And like I said, it's, it's something that's always going to be changing and, you know, if you hear something and it's tugging on you and you're like, ooh, what's that about? That's a, that I have found is a good thing because you should, ne you need to be comfortable with the uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, you need to, you know, you'd have to kind of take it in, in big chunks and small chunks and chew it up a bit before you swallow it. Right. Uh, to really get a taste of what it is. I have a lot of thoughts going in my head right now and I'm just going to just pick one and chase it down and uh and see where this takes us i'm i'm struck by your concept of god himself learning when he picks up a human body and 
I, I'm so excited in the, by the way, that's, that's pairing up with a lot of what I've been reading. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Richard Rohr. He's a Franciscan monk, oh, Franciscan yeah. friar. And, and he talks about the incarnation in that God wholly loves that which he chooses to inhabit himself. Like he, God mm-hmm. loves humanity by becoming a human. That's the greatest expressions of expression of God's love was to choose to put on a human body to, like you were saying, experience what we experience and like be in the thick of it um, and be in places where, you know, his disciples were also having conversations with these Pharisees. And now he gets to have these conversations with the Pharisees and point out their mm-hmm. inconsistencies and point out their, uh, you know, their, uh, their cognitive dissonance within, within themselves. Because I think that, I think the Pharisees themselves were, uh, are a misunderstood bunch of people, um, that it's really easy yes. to read them in 2020 and be like, these idiots, do they, what are they, <laughs> you know? Um, and then I accidentally say something that like one of them said in the gospel of Luke and I'm like, Oh dang it. I know, <gasps> right. I know how it felt to be like needled and poked and prodded by Jesus who was like not willing to play their game. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, right. <laughs> and so it's, it's that not willing to play their game thing that I'm kind of trying to chase down here because my sense of God's mm. justice lately is that, um, you, Jesus's nature and God's nature being what I consider clearly in the gospels to be so fundamentally nonviolent. Um, mm. like Jesus disarms Peter and heals the wounded man and puts his ear is lopped off ear back on and like fixes his scalp basically because that wasn't as clean as just an ear falling off you know that right <laughs> yeah no right I mean let's envision it's the whole Mike Tyson thing like that you know was what a, I mean? that was a glance <laughs> off the skull probably took a big chunk of skin oh, yeah. probably dug into his shoulder at the same time like you know that wasn't just but so Jesus doesn't cheer Peter on and be like, yes, keep doing that. He actually says, no, stop, 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 stop. And he heals the guy and he disarms Peter and says like, we will never do this. We're not playing that game. We're not playing the war game. We're not playing the drone strike game. This is not how the people of God do this. And I'm trying to show you this and you're so missing the point. (laughs) So close to my crucifixion. (laughs) Like I've been teaching you this for how many years now? Um, Come on. So I think in disarming Peter, he's disarming the church as well and teaching us a nonviolent way to be human. And I think it's that nonviolent uh, sense of just overwhelming reconciliation that like if if I want to label God's justice, that's almost how I want to say it. Like God's justice is so subversive and so counterintuitive that it's not necessarily like the ledgers are being measured out or, or, you know, uh, we're not balancing the checkbook here of sin versus good, uh, grace versus depravity. Um, like it's not a, it's, it's, yeah, it's not a checkbook to balance here, but instead, um, you know, like I said earlier, the cross is an opportunity for the Christian to sin our sins into Jesus's, um, dying body on the cross so that when his resurrected body rises again, the sin is left in the ground. Like this is why we say in the, sure. the apostles creed that he descended to the dead. Like he left it down there 
and when he rose mm-hmm. again, we're, we're given this announcement that, you know, sin can be left behind. Death even can be left behind. And this is why I absolutely love Christus Victor as well as like death just as a concept is now over for those who right. dare to live like it. Um, so God's justice to me is kind of that taking violence, taking sin, taking ugliness, taking anger, um, however you want to say it, it's taking it out of circulation and mm. leaving it behind with Jesus as our victor and as our, um, as our savior, essentially, uh, like the, the scene that always comes back to me, um, that just feels so right when I watch it, it makes me cry every time is the very beginning or near the beginning of Les Mis, the new, uh, oh. at least the newer one where, uh, Hugh Jackman ends up at this monastery on top of the mountain and, the priest welcomes in it, him in with the biggest like wise man smile, you know, like he knows something's about mm-hmm. to happen. He's like, this guy, this guy, <laughs> he welcomes yeah. him in, gives him food. <laughs> Even the nuns are looking at him like, are we, like, are mm-hmm. we actually doing this? Like, you know, this guy is a criminal. Right. We, you can just tell, right? What are we doing? And the priest is so Jesus when Hugh Jackman's character, I'm blanking on the names and the characters of Les Mis, but Hugh Jackman's character goes and steals a bunch of stuff and runs down the mountain thinking that he can sell it, have money, because ultimately, like, you learn very early on he was in prison because he stole a loaf of bread to feed his family, which is one of the best thought experiments to ever get into, by the way, but we won't hear. (laughs) (laughs) Um but he gets caught and the guards drag him up to the top of the mountain again, which in itself is hyper symbolic. Thank you. Mm. Um, drag him up to the top of the mountain in the middle of the night, wake the priest up and say, we caught this man running away from your, your monastery here. And he has all your belongings and God's justice to me is the priest saying, no, I, I gave him those. And also in fact, and he, he, he addresses the thief and says, you actually forgot a couple things and pulls the candlesticks right. off the table. Like what, what I love about the sense of God justice of God's justice I have right now is that God's justice like turns around and says like, yeah, you did that. And that wasn't great. We both know that wasn't great, but I'm going to so subvert your way of thinking that I'm going to just like freak your bean here and in fact give you mm. more gold and silver to go sell if you choose to go do it and you can leave me on good terms. Like I am right. I am stamping you with approval essentially. Like the guards have no idea, they have no category for what to do with this because the entire system set up in the story is like justice is exactly exacted. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um <laughs> when things are paid for. And like, this is why uh, Russell Crowe's character eventually like the cognitive dissonance in himself when even he is spared, like causes right. him to commit suicide because he has no category for what just no happened. No idea. Right. Yeah. And that like God's justice can do that. It can either redeem someone like Hugh Jackman's character and teach them. No, now you get to take this story and take this just overwhelming grace because the song after mm. that, when he's in the, uh, the little yep. chapel and he's tearing paper and like screaming at the altar and then about to leave and turns around with tears. Like 
Yeah. God, just, that, that is it. That, that subversive, like, oh no, like this, this was never how it was supposed to be. And I'm just going to show you that by, in fact, right. doubling down on the thing that you thought was going to harm me. Um, but instead I'm just going <laughs> to give you even more. And those two characters in that story, like that's how they can be, that's how it is responded to. It's either accepted and then you amplify it or you have no category for it and it so freaks you out that it would be easier to not be alive and deal with the dissonance, mm. you know? Right. It's <sighs> almost countercultural. Yes, exactly. That's, that's what it's supposed to be because, you know, and I, I can't tell or correct people on how they see God. I can only express mm. how I see God. Mm. And for me, God is not punitive. God is not one to place judgment because of one thing. Yeah. Uh, if, if, if we have grace, then that wouldn't make sense, you know? And for me, and I, I too, I think of that image. I think of when you were speaking of nonviolent, you know, really turning the tables on, on those actions of wanting to use the sword and, and, you know, inst- that's the thing too, is he instinctively drew his sword. That's what, that, that's what he grew up in that life doing that, that was the only thing that he knew right that's what his amygdala trained up. him to be like this his to monkey be, brain that was, was just who like he oh, was fight back gotta do it right you know like there's the ear it's right there yeah and and jesus is like whoa let's you know take you're up here you need to be down here let's <laughs> put that down, down notch, okay my friend. take a deep breath okay breathe <laughs> in with me in through the nose out through the mouth so good center yourself <laughs> but at this, my brother but at the same time Jesus knew how to start a revolution. And I think of in the temple when he's flipping the table, I don't envision it as like a, he walked by and oopsie, I bumped into it and there goes all your money. It was, he looked around, he probably cursed something under his breath and just with all of his might, because he was a strong dude. He, you know, we envision him as a carpenter, Mm. Uh, but more than likely, he actually worked with stone. Mm-hmm. He was probably a stonemason because over in Palestine, the type of tree that's there, uh, you don't do a lot of woodworking with. It's mm-hmm. because of the because of the weather, because of the climate, it's very hard to work with. So stone was actually much more uh, more pliable and better to work with and to build with. So you think of a stonemason. I mean, their hands just. There, there's calluses beefy. and yep. they're beefy. They've done good work. So I imagine those hands just gripping that table and tossing it, you know, and that's not violent, but it's making a statement of yeah. saying, I'm able to direct my force in a way that is not causing harm, but is still getting the point across. Yes. And knowing that there are ways, there are outlets that we can direct our message without distorting it by using violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think about recently, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with friends about the Black Lives Matter movement and the looting that has gone concurrence with that. Yeah. And they don't, you know, the understanding of, well, why are they doing this? Like, it's not a form of protest. They're just destroying things. Well, they are destroying things as a form of protest. And it's when it becomes violent 
that that message is no longer getting across. It's lost. Yeah. It's when that message is being tainted Mm -hmm. by this act of harming someone else. Uh, And Jesus definitely was trying to shape the society of where war was constant. War was something deeply ingrained in that society as much as we don't want to admit it. Uh, It was. And well, as as it always is in empire. And it will be. We see it today. War is happening in different forms. Right. And it'll take different shapes. And so here's this here's this lowly guy from the house of David who claims to be the Messiah who says, we're going to change this and we're going to direct all of our energy into shaping something new without having to lift a sword. Right. And I think what's great about that is that is the most victorious thing you could do is mm-hmm. to change someone's heart without having to use force uh, in the form of a weapon, in the form of something that is separate between you and I. If I use a gun, if I use a sword, if I, you know, use a, a drone far away in the sky to throw something down, that's that's in the way, you know? So Jesus was like, we're going to be more hands-on and we're going to do, we're going to go to to these places and these people and talk. We're going to get momentum going with our voices right. and with with us listening to people and doing these things that you are not doing to make change. And that worked, you know? Will it work today? It's up to us. Uh, and that's something that I like to explore with my campers at church camp and with my congregation is how are you going to be a part of this narrative? Are you going to be on the side of war and chaos, or are you going to be on the side of flipping tables, but speaking with love and with grace on, on your soul and on your heart? Gosh. Yes. Thank you for this. This is so good. Cause I'm, I'm struck by, <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm struck by like a, a stonemason's Jesus beefy hands. Um, the hands that he's using to flip tables very angrily and mm-hmm. fashion a whip we might add. Yes. Um, I'm also imagining these hands are the hands that are healing the, 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 the rend, like the, mm. the torn head of the guy who lost his ear. Um, yes. I'm also imagining these hands are the ones that doodle in the dust when the Pharisees are trying to accuse an adulterous woman. And he, and he challenges everyone to say, let, him with no sin throw the first stone Mm -hmm. and no one is left by the end of them all (laughs) kind of like coming to terms with oh yeah maybe i don't have a leg to stand on here um Mm -hmm. and like he's just doodling in the dust the whole time and then he looks up and asks like woman where are your accusers and she says they're all gone and he's like yeah i don't accuse you either by the way don't do that because it's not healthy for you and it's never the way i intended a daughter of mine to live Right. And that's what he's saying when he says, don't live in sin anymore. Go live with no sin like that, because I have so much th- better things for you. Yeah. Um, But like, yeah, it's a subversive thing. And like he teaches in the Gospels, if someone compels you to walk a mile, if a Roman soldier who could legally by the, the codes in their day mm-hmm. compel you to walk a mile, it could only be a mile. If you took one step beyond a mile, then you flipped 
the power script on them because the more you walked with their pack, the more in danger of being accused of uh, injustice they were. Like they could only com- absolutely only compel you to a mile if you walk a second mile. Every step of that is causing them to stress and say, like, if anyone asks, it's still the first mile, right? Like, I didn't ask you to do this. Um, mm-hmm. And this is and this is why if somebody slaps you uh, on one cheek, you turn the other because you turn the other. Exactly. exactly. Because you it, when you turn the other, you're inviting them to use their other hand, which apocryphally maybe um, was typically the hand that you would clean yourself after uh, ridding mm-hmm. yourself of some waste. And, you know, cleanliness was not what it was then as it is now. Um, so typically you didn't do any greeting. You didn't do any touching with your other hand is because this is, this mm-hmm. is how you would clean yourself. But if you turned your other cheek and offered them, go ahead and slap me with your dirty hand. Yeah. See what happens. <laughs> exactly. See what happens. Like you think that would be just a little bit of a social moray? Like, nope. Like, right. Like it's a subversive no, thing that Jesus taught us to do very countercultural and mm. I, that was the whole point then as it is today you know we are meant to be countercultural we are we are meant to you know take that narrative and take that understanding of you know walk another mile turn the other cheek in today's context it was very contextual and that is something i don't think a lot of people fully embrace. No, uh, not a, well, it, and it's like, sh- and it's different. Yeah. And the, I mean, even in the gospels, uh, Jesus kind of critiques the concept of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Um, yeah. as well, like, you know, if, if we're going to map this whole trajectory and this whole theme that we've been talking about for the last few minutes, like instead of an eye for an eye, somebody robs you of an eye and you, you pluck out one of theirs. What have you offered the second one? Like, mm-hmm. would that not, freak someone else out enough to think <laughs> maybe what I was doing was wrong. Mm-hmm. Maybe there it's is a like different that. definition of like justice. Reverse, yeah. Well, yeah. And it's almost like that reverse psychology. There's in something a way. baked into the universe that is so freaky when you take it and turn the other cheek or walk the second mile yeah. or allow yourself to be crucified, even in the midst of, men and women taunting you saying if you were really god you would get yourself down it is not human nature to experience that it is a god nature and that's i think what god was trying to show us was no you can tap into this like you can do what i do in a sense if you if you just if yes. you just do this turn the other cheek you know it's something that you're not used to and it's because you're human. There are so mm. many limitations that we experience. So let me try to let me try to engage you in this a bit more. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. Something just popped into my head. Like I said, I've I've been reading Just Mercy, and before this conversation, I was thinking the title was Just Mercy in the sense like the word "just" was saying mm. simply mercy, right. But after this conversation with you, I'm, I'm starting to think of that title in my head as a just mercy, just as injustice mercy. Right. Like the justice of God is the radical mercy that's offered to us in a God that would allow himself to be crucified and rises again and rises and in fact forgives the very people that crucified him. Exactly. Right. And I loved, I had, to, I had to read that book for one of my Christian education classes in seminary and Oh. One of the topics that came up was 
how do we then as the majority take this book, take this knowledge mm. uh, and share it with people, you know, because it was meant for everyone to read. Uh, oh, absolutely. You know, there, there certainly wasn't a, oh, you have to fit this, you know, it's for this class or whatever. It was a book that I truly believe he wrote to almost in a sense, like God was like, hey, I need to get the point across. So it's like, he wrote this book was like, let me share these experiences mm. that you are either missing out on or choosing to ignore. Willfully blind. And let's take this information and wrestle with it to have a better understanding of, okay, how are we going to turn the other cheek now? Because this has been happening for so long and yeah. there is no justice in what is happening. And so how do we as a majority, how do we as those who are privileged because of not our own doing, some of it our own doing, uh, but mostly, you know, it's just how we were born and mm. placed in this world. How are we going to shape the narrative for those people? And what is it that we can do to lend not just our voices, but our ears? Because clearly we have a lot of listening to do. Clearly there's a lot of deconstruction that we have to do mm. and put back together in a way that's better. Uh, for right. us to actually come together and, you know, sin is in the world. It's present in sexism, racism, xenophobia, you know, heterosexism. It's it's alive. Mm. And there's a lot of work that we need to do as humanity, as God's beloved creation to to work for the kingdom of God, for heaven to be on earth. Because uh, I believe it is possible. And what that'll look like. I don't know, but what I envision is, you know, maybe it's very idealistic of me, but it's, it's ultimately everyone truly coming together and acknowledging everyone's uniqueness as their own, but still maintaining this bond of, we are a human race. Mm. We are a human people created and loved by someone who wants and strives for us to do and be that same love that God is for us. And that is something we're going to have to constantly work at. Um, and it's books like Just Mercy. And, you know, I think of leadership books uh, like Canoeing the Mountains, where, you mm. know, Lewis and Clark had to ditch the canoes to climb the mountains. They had to change their ways. If we have books on leadership about changing our ways, what about books for just humanity in general about changing our ways and changing our hearts finding new ways and strategies to strive for the communal good. Uh, that's something that I am just so fascinated with. My goodness. <laughs> I just have to laugh. You know, those, you know, those things that ring so true with you that they just make you like giddy and make you feel like giggling. That's this, this is how I feel right now. Like it's, it's so true. It's funny. Which is good. Like that, that's something that Richard Rohr says all the time. Or, uh, I think it was also, um, Eckhart Tolle and Ram Dass. And I, yes. I heard this from, uh, Pete Holmes on his podcast, but he's like, yeah, the truth is freaking funny, man. Like, of course it's going to make you laugh because <laughs> it just doesn't seem like it should be true, but it is and it, right. when it, like when it, when it uh, plucks that string in your heart and it's just, you feel that bass note. It's like, ah, oh, mm, this is yeah. how, this is how it was supposed to, this is how it should be. So good. 
I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about the concept of free will and how you grew up in a theological system that certainly holds free will a lot more than I grew up with predestination or um, what are some of the other terms for it? We kind of talked a, a little bit about atonement, but there was like limited atonement. I'm forgetting what the U in TULIP stands for. Um, oh, oh, shoot. Is it like unconditional election or something? Something like something that. Something about election. I'm just going to pull it up. It is unconditional election. Mm-hmm. That sounds right. Um, which is a very like, uh, oh, oh, we also have irresistible grace mm-hmm. as part of that. Um, so I just want to talk about the f- concept of free will and how you grew up uh, in a theological system that offered free will as a legitimate option and, mm-hmm. uh, and didn't kind of pigeonhole into predestination or, you know, God perfectly knows the future. Um, which means that you can't actually make a decision that he's not aware of so that the whole thing was predestined. That's essentially like right. the, like boil, boil the whole concept of predestination down. It, it is that like we have no free will because God knows it. And so we can't make a choice that he wasn't expecting. Right. Uh, yeah. So let's talk about how free will kind of factors into your whole theological system within Methodism. Um, and what implications that have on maybe some other uh, corners of theology or just how that impacts your day-to-day life. Sure. One thing that, um, at least in the Methodist church, we really strive to push the difference between free will and free choice. Uh, Mm. And free will is, I think, a concept that sounds way more simpler than it is. Uh, More often than not, free will is confused with free choice, and that is the assumption that freedom means the ability to make a choice between two possibilities. Okay. Uh, And how this freedom is typically, you know, characterized in a way is that, you know, you have eggs for breakfast or you have, you know, cereal for breakfast. Like, those are your two choices. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you're free. You can choose uh, to have eggs or breakfast, or you can choose to be a doctor or a lawyer. Um, that's not the case though. And I think what's interesting is that this freedom is revealed through scripture. Uh, and Jesus actually does that through a lot of his teachings. Free will is about the direction of our lives. Um, it's more about like the desires. So, Mm. you know, what do you desire out of life? What are things that Maybe you are desiring that are selfish. What are things that you are desiring that are, you know, are not part of God's plan? Uh, and it's almost like that idolatry element of human sure. nature. Okay. Uh, and Paul actually really calls this, especially in, I'm thinking of uh, the book of Romans where, you know, Paul is writing that, you know, there is only one way to look at this and it's this desire that we have and that we have turned it away. We have desired to turn away. Uh, it wasn't a choice. It wasn't, do we stay or do we go? Do we believe or not believe? Do we listen or not listen? It was, we just desired to not do something. Uh, and it's this idea Mm. of what does it mean to desire God? Because we have that choice if we believe in free choice of do I accept God's grace or not? 
Uh, instead, it should be, do I desire God's grace? And if not, why? You have to have a, a justification for it. Wow. Uh, okay. You know, like you can't like, I could just say, hey, Stephen, do you want cereal or eggs for breakfast? You could say cereal and not justify why. You know, but you could say, you know, I really, I, I want waffles. And here's why. Like, this is something <laughs> that you are longing for. Yeah. That's what, that's what free will is, is it's this longing mm. and you defining that and sharing that with others. And so now we get into the more theological side of free will. So I am desiring God. And at any point I can, you know, I could say, you know, God, I'm just not feeling it right now. I'm going to come back to you. And that's where that grace comes in of, okay, it's waiting. It's here for you. It's not going anywhere. I'm still here. I am still present. My arms are open. The door is always open. There's no lock. There's no passcode. You come in. When you are ready, you come in. Ooh, yes. Uh, That got me excited. Yeah, because it's like like the the father just waiting for the prodigal son. Um, Yes. Or even in Revelation. Uh, saying that her gates will never be shut. Like the kingdom of heaven, her mm-hmm. gates will never be shut. It's always open. It's always available. It's always open. Right. Yeah. Okay. And Good. it'll Keep always going. be there. Yes. Yeah. So I'm thinking about, um, this is kind of where we bring in uh, the spirit, like the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit comes and our the Holy Spirit is essentially like a paraclete or an advocate. Mm. Uh, and that's what Jesus was. And the Holy Spirit also acts as a guide. And so the Holy Spirit is advocating for us and guiding us to understand the choices that we make, the circumstances that we're in, you know, where are we in the narrative of God's story for us mm-hmm. and where we are right now, who you are in this very moment, you still have a desire to strive for something no matter what is happening. And so no matter the circumstances, you can strive for justice and you can strive to alleviate suffering in the world, mm. or you can, you know, desire to, you know, have more wealth or have more fame, have more attention, you know, regardless of what it is, that gate will be open because the Holy Spirit is finding a way to work in your heart to allow you to see the gate that is open, mm. you know? I think so many times of my own experience where I was so mad at God after my friend had died of, oh, just shut the gate. Like, I don't care. Like, whatever. And I would I would have this feeling of wanting to, like, turn my back. And it'd be like, no matter where I turned, it was like there was a mirror. And I was looking and seeing behind me. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's like, no matter where I was, I could see God was with me, that God was present. Mm. God understood and God cares. Uh, and it was because that God came and experienced life as a human that we were able to see that God cares. So when you have this concept of free will to desire something, it kind of makes sense that we should desire to strive for peace, grace, mm. love, mercy. Like, why would you want anything else in the world? Because those are good things. Those are pure things and sacred things that really make and shape the world into a better place. And all people are able to experience that. It's when we desire, you know, fame, fortune, you know, uh, infatuation, uh, anything like that, those selfish things, 
that is not for the good of humanity. Those are, those are things that get in the way. And so our will should be to desire those things that are for the communal good and for God's glory in the world. So free will is a concept that, wow. Ooh, man, I could talk about forever. Yeah, I had, <laughs> I had, I honestly had no idea that there was a, even a distinction between free will and free choice. And maybe that, that's mm-hmm. a, that's a fault of my own study or, um, just a, a deficit in what I was taught to be the other side of the binary of, you know, we believe in predestination and there's free will over there. Those Armenians that are weird. Right. But you know, us good Calvinists, we can't, we can't entertain those thoughts at all. <laughs> oh no, not at all. Right. What things, what, what are you talking well, about? <laughs> so to give five point Calvinists some credit, because, uh, mm-hmm. The, the one thing that lands in the TULIP acronym, so we have total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and preservation of the saints. I guess maybe those last two points I, I love about a robust, healthy theology. Like Even what you're describing is um, the, the Holy Spirit as paraclete, which is like a word I learned about this week, and I'm so excited about it, by the way. Uh, like the, the counselor and the, the, it's like the the wooing presence of God, um, you know, Holy spirit as paraclete, as, as this person who continually like points back over your shoulder and says, you know, the gate's right behind you, right? Like the gate is, has in fact been following you. It's not even static behind you. The further you walk away, it's just, (laughs) it's always there. It's there. And it's, that sounds an ultimate or that sounds an awful lot like irresistible grace to me in a, in a Calvinistic framework. Mm. Um, now some, some of the critique of irresistible grace I've heard has been, okay, so, uh, if you're part of the elect and, uh, you are selected, um, and predestined to be part of the limited atonement, then even against your, Oh, how would we against your free will, and against mm-hmm. your desire, you're dragged to heaven kicking and screaming because you were mar- right. marked as a person of God. Um, you, like, I think that's a fair critique um, when five point is taken as is. Um, but I mean, like, yeah, who wouldn't want irresistible grace in a God that loves his own creation, loves it enough to incarnate right. as the universe and as a human person named Jesus himself, you know? Mm, mm-hmm. Ah, so oh, good. So good. I'm like, oh, I have goosebumps. I have butterflies in my stomach. <laughs> huh. Right. This is again, my cup of tea. <laughs> again, this is, this is gospel. This is good news. Yes. Um, and that's it exactly sounds a lot, what it's supposed to be. Exactly. And it sounds a lot better than what um, I felt like I was growing up with, which was you're damned to hell. Uh, you're pretty much hopeless without Jesus. So pray the sinner's prayer, lock that up, you know, like get your ticket to heaven. It's offered here. Right. Um, and which, I feel like too, with that, it's almost like you said, it's very individually based. Yeah. And I think of a kingdom, you know, it's, you have more than just you involved. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what kind of kingdom would it be if you just care about the individual? Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Like right. you're supposed to share the good news with all people. Right. Uh, and, w- and with and a kingdom, it doesn't matter. And with a kingdom, we're typically, I mean, 
by the name itself, we're talking about a king who happens to mm-hmm. be an individual. And then it's the people. <laughs> right. Right. And when you think of when you think of kingdom, if you actually even take that word further in and you see the word kin, you, mm. it's sibling, it's mm. it's relational, it's, Preach. you know, partner, Thank partner, you. brother, sister, fellowship, yes. uh, you know, and the G can almost be silent. Right. Uh, because kingdom. While while Jesus is the king, Jesus is the Christ, you know, it's not a it is not a form of dictatorship or of, you know, of servitude or things like that where we are serving a king where we get on our knees and, you know, Jesus isn't on a throne of dictatorship. Right. You know, and Jesus in- is on a throne that is level to where we sit. <sighs> It is right. equal playing field for all of us to experience what God experiences. Right. Because, in fact, the Apostle Paul dares to call us co-heirs with Christ. Yes. Thank you Absolutely. for this gift. This is so good. I am <laughs> so hyped on this. Okay. <laughs> I know that was a lot to listen to that you guys kept talking a lot, but um, I wanted to say something before we really get into it. It it was a doozy. I queued up this audio the other day in my podcast player and I had been in the middle of another podcast and the raw footage you gave me, Stephen, just like abruptly stops like pretty much where it did. And as soon as your audio stopped between you two talking, my other podcast came on and the host literally started saying, and I quote, which is why there's no definitive answer to this question. There's several different hypotheses. <laughs> and I like, I had to pause. I had to pause it because I was like, wait, was that Steven? No. Wait, this is a different podcast. What? And it was like completely relevant. What? <laughs> Whoa. Isn't that what? wild? That's why. Oh, so I guess just for a, production note there the reason it does abruptly kind of cut off is in the podcast i became aware of the fact that i was rabbit trailing pretty hard off the you know the source material that just being emily's life and we we just started talking theology <laughs> so the reason that that conversation just kind of abruptly abruptly ends is because that was essentially an hour of conversation i just was able to you know cut on either side and lift out of the audio and push cut away, the other yeah. yeah push the other sides together and that ended up being more or less no normal people. Well, I was just going to say, throughout the interview, Stephen would be like, wow, we've been talking about theology for 35 minutes. But then he'd be like, well, I have another ah. question now that we're talking about this. And then he'd be like, oh, it's been an hour that we've been talking about this. Maybe we should jump back on topic. <laughs> but I loved it. Like, even though the topic completely switched from what no normal people is normally about, it was such a great conversation and it was great because it was my first Sunday and I was able to share with Steven that moment and just to talk theology. And it was so great. Oh, that's crazy. I forgot it was your first Sunday, her first Sunday. And it might as well have been my first amateur (laughs) media interview ever because I was so off topic. Okay. That's enough of me and Emily, Josh, your notes. What did you have for us? Well, I have to say, I, I do have to say, uh, when I listened to this the other day, even though it was the second time I've listened to it, because I listened to it forever ago when you were first like, hey, let's do a podcast. 
the other day, this was a really encouraging listen for me because earlier this week, I watched a uh, documentary that came out this year that was really heavy on penal substitutionary atonement and um, some like Calvinist reform theology. And I tell you what, for me, it was really encouraging listening to this interview again Mm. and like just being reminded that like, even if there's like truth in these pieces that like other people emphasize way more that like, it's only a piece of the puzzle and like finishing the podcast and like going into like that other podcast that was just like a reminder that there's a lot of different ways to describe like the same thing, but like, we're all like kind of finding our ground in this thing, even if we're like describing it and like hypothesizing about it in different ways. Mm, yeah. And I, I just thought that that was such a really, really relieving reminder for myself, honestly. So I hope that that was mm. nice for other people to think about too. Like for instance, I was, I was thinking yeah. about it particularly with you guys mostly talked about like justice and atonement. And for me, it brought up this question of like, and maybe Emily, maybe you have more insight into this, but do you think that atonement language in some ways is just semantics when we're like still like finding unity in the discussion over like what the function of Jesus and the Christ was? Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I, yeah, I would say, I would say so. I also think a lot of it, well, like you had just mentioned, it's contextual and there's so much conversation about who the figure of Jesus is for, you know, Mm. particular people. And it's hard to, it's, that's why I don't like the word theories. Like theories doesn't apply to something that isn't necessarily concrete and proven by scientific reasoning. And so like atonement theory, I just, that word doesn't fly because the fact that there are so many open-ended conversations around the topic of who Jesus even is as a person, let alone if Jesus is the Messiah for for people, just take away the word theory and just put in whatever label you think would be fit. So like atonement hypothesis, atonement speculation. You know, I think mm-hmm. when we when we start taking away those labels, language around atonement and and things revolving around atonement become clearer and I think opens up mm. the conversation a bit more because of that word theory just automatically kind of hard hammers in, oh, well, it's theory, so therefore there's reasoning behind it and there's, you know, there's all these facts and there's this research when it's a soft science. Isn't that kind of funny, of though? I like that you brought up science. Yeah, I brought. I like that you, Um, sorry, I was really cutting you off there, but I really like that you brought up uh, scientific theories and like the distinction there because I really like to make fun of people that like approach science and say something like, well, it's just a theory as if like that discredits it somehow when like the opposite is true in science. The like theory means it's like well established. Right. Exactly. Whereas like maybe in this atonement discussion saying that's just a theory is like pretty accurate. <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> Like you don't actually There's know. There's a tone of voice that comes with the word theory when we're talking theology, for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Although, so <laughs> I I don't remember if you guys touched on this. Oh no, 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 you did. It was in the uh, you were talking about like the diamond, like the diamond style of understanding it, like almost like it's four points on the square of atonement or something. I think you were referring to Preston Sprinkle, Stephen. Yep. If I'm remembering correctly, yeah, nailed it. It's funny this documentary that I watched that I 
there were some things I liked about it. There were some things I didn't like about it. But one of the things I did like was that they kind of used that analogy, but they argued that like penal substitutionary atonement was like the crux of it. They actually used the analogy of a cross that like maybe like Christus Victor and ransom theory and um, whatever the other one is besides penal right. substitutionary um, that they like all fit together. But like penal substitutionary is like the, the crux of the cross. Right. Which is arguable, but I thought it was interesting that like even they were kind of like, they all fit together. They're like all referring to the same thing, even though they were like definitely emphasizing penal substitutionary. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Right. But I was reminded in your interview here about like scapegoat theology, which is usually attributed to um, Rene Descartes, if I believe correctly. And it just like, it took me back to like some of the parables and I was like reminded of like parables of like the lost sheep or the lost coin and how like even though you can argue from the text for something like scapegoat theology Jesus has to become like our scapegoat somehow wherever we're finding that in the text is not the parables the parables of the shepherd are not the shepherd has to like sacrifice his son to find his lost sheep oh you know what I mean like, you know what I mean? Like, I was I was reminded of that when you were when you guys were talking about, like, the relationship between atonement theories. And it was just kind of interesting to be reminded of the parables in that way. Like, there's nothing in Jesus's parables, especially about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, where there's any sort of like, I mean, I guess you could argue that the shepherd lays down his life for his sheep or, or like some phrasing like that. But there's nothing like the shepherd takes a sheep and sacrifices it. And to find other sheep, <laughs> which like actually might have made sense to the Jewish people because yeah, like right. sacrificing sheep was like kind of the norm. Like that would have been really fitting analogy to use. But like he just completely f- flips the script right. and like doesn't even talk about yeah. something like that. Mm-hmm. I just thought that was kind of interesting to be reminded of. Ooh, that's a that's a good point, because, yeah, it, the shepherd doesn't have to go slaughter something to go find. You know, <laughs> he leaves the ninety nine or leaves ninety eight, kills one <laughs> to find the other. Like, that's not a yeah. trade that yeah, he yeah, has yeah. to make <laughs> or the woman with the last coin, you know, like yeah, you bring right. that up or even like the prodigal son. The reason that the parable of the prodigal son is like there's so many layers to it. But ultimately, mm-hmm. the father is like, OK, I know this isn't the best way for you to live. I know this much money in the hands of a very young man is actually going to destroy him in a way, but I'm going to do it because I value the dignity of his own choices. So I'm going to send him out. Mm -hmm. He's going to go do whatever he does. And the father like divorces himself from the money. Mm -hmm. Even in a way he's like, it's not even my money to give. I'll give it to you now. It's Mm -hmm. not going to work out great. But the minute I see you cross the horizon. Mm. I am sprinting out there to meet you. You know that. Okay. I actually, I thought of this parable too. And I have a question. Sure. Are you ready for this? Okay. So I feel like the prodigal son parable is usually understood as God is the father and like the older brother is the Pharisees and the younger brother is us. Right. Like it's kind of understood in that way. So who is Jesus in that story? Ooh. Where is he? Ooh. Jesus mm. tells this story. Where is Jesus? It's true. I think a lot of people think Jesus is the calf. Whoa. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Yeah. The, you know what I'm saying? Fatted... Like that 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 was the only parable I could think of that like had some sort what? of element of death or like sacrifice. And it would almost be like 
<laughs> I don't know. Like, I can't imagine what, like, the father character would be saying, but, like, son, I'm glad you're home. I'm going to kill this calf, and this calf's name is Jesus. Killed him just for you. Oh, man. Okay. I'm... <laughs> that... And I don't like that reading, if I'm being honest. Like, I've... That's probably too overblown, but that oh, that's not great, Emily. What are you? What's your reaction to that? I'm cur- I'm so curious. <laughs> well, oh, oh my gosh, oh. <laughs> Well, okay, so you bring up a good point because, like, you even laid out. Oh, okay, so we typically identify as this character, and you know, we identify God as this character. But I actually had a conversation the other day with a parishioner at my church, mm. and she was like. Pastor Emily, is it bad to say that I see myself as the son that didn't run and take the money? Like, I'm the son that stayed and I feel guilty and hate towards the sibling that is being welcomed back. And it made me think for a second, like, Mm. maybe the roles aren't clearly labeled. Like, maybe Mm. we are able to see ourselves in multiple ways. And so... I don't know where I would put Jesus in that story. Like, oh, it just makes me think so hard. I don't totally. know. But you bring up you bring up a really good point though, I think. I will I will pause it because immediately when Josh suggested like where is Jesus, my brain immediately went to the Bible verse where Jesus is claiming I and the Father are one. So like maybe we don't have to sure. split father and son or or like father and capital son, capital S son. In that, I'm also just cracking into Richard Rohr's Universal Christ, and I'm so I'm so tempted, you guys, just to say Christ is the path itself, or Christ was like in with the pigs that he was sure. hanging out with, and also in the mud, and also in the money, and like my my temptation sure. is just to say like the Christ spirit throughout the entire story. It's so evident um, to me, like that. Something is, it seems to be maybe safeguarding the son and at the same time allowing it to happen and at the same time quickening his heart to be like, you know, I really sinned against my father here. I should go back and like adopt this uh, posture of humility and whatnot. Like there, there seems to be a mm. spirit in the air in the story that never gets named that mm. causes different reactions from different people. You know, the father is just so joyful to see his son back and that spirit is giving them the gift of that joy. The son, the the prodigal son is the one who's like, like maybe that voice of conviction. And then the, the older son is like, I mean, yeah, I mean, oh my gosh, Emily, I can totally relate to your friends feeling that they are the, the older son in the story. Because that's kind of how I've always felt. I've never gone like on crazy benders or ragers or whatever, and then have to come back like uh, hat in hand, like, right. Oh man, I really messed up. I just feel like, you know, the good little Christian boy <laughs> most of my entire life. But yeah, I mean, maybe. No, Stephen, I think you're right on the money there about like Jesus being um, one with the father and like your point, Emily, about like there's the, the reason the, pow- the parables are so powerful is because usually they're not clear and they're really ambiguous and they're open to interpretation. But Stephen, I, I think you're absolutely right that like we sh- probably shouldn't separate whoever the God figure is in that story, which is why I think reading Jesus as the calf is like a completely misunderstood representation. Like, I don't think that if that Mm. wasn't obvious, but like, I think that some people like tend to make like those strict labels and answers within the parables. And then like use that to make 
like extravagantly detailed theology as if we like completely understand it. Which is back to your original question right. of like when we talk about theology, especially when it in regards to atonement, are we just is it a semantics game? Like are we trying to put a label on something in the sixth dimension that we have no real comprehension of? Mm-hmm. I think this is a very real possibility. Yeah, which I think is which I think is interesting. Although you uh I was reminded of this both in your interview and with this documentary I watched the other day because there were some really similar uh, discussion points. You said this thing towards the end of the interview. I think it was Stephen who said it about like the, like the last two letters of the acronym TULIP, I th- the I and the mm-hmm. P. Maybe they like aren't that bad. Like yeah, yep. Uh, you like you were kind of admitting like there's something there, and I was also reminded of like Calvinists aren't the only ones who believe in total depravity. Like as much crap as it gets. A lot of people believe in that, like the idea that we're like born with original sin and like are somehow like we are like nothing without God and like we need salvation, whatever salvation means. Like a lot of people believe that theology too. You know what I mean? And like, I, I just felt like between the interview and this documentary I watched and like, I was like thinking about this all weekend and like Mm -hmm. as much crap as I like to give to people whose theology I disagree with, uh, I feel like it's just like so humbling sometimes to like remember that like I have something to learn from them too. Like I bet the Calvinists have more to teach me about irresistible grace than I could ever come up with. You know what I mean? Wow, yeah. Oh. Like as much crap as I like to give them about like double predestination and like they think they know who's going to heaven and hell. Like, Man, irresistible grace is like kind of a concept. Like they've done way more thinking about that than I have. Yeah. I love that posture. I think my my entire goal in this Ravel project, like speaking with you guys on a weekly basis, is literally just to train up that attitude in me, Josh, that you've put your thumb on there. Like I I want to contend with the ideas on the merits of the ideas themselves. And I never want to caricaturize someone based on the mm theology they have because i i do agree that total depravity uh doesn't strictly belong to the calvinists right so like it it does that Mm -hmm. tradition a disservice and it also does myself a disservice just to be like oh you know those people over there they believe this nonsense thing that i don't completely agree with because while uh, i mean this could be an entire episode but i don't necessarily think that total depravity and original sin are tangled in such a way that you can't separate them and not have either one like i i mm-hmm. do i believe in the concept sure. of original sin but i'm i'm really not convinced of total depravity sure. yet or anymore i don't know how to put that but man i just think that's such a healthy attitude to bring to these conversations like i have something to learn from someone who probably agrees or disagrees with me on more points than not but at the same time like I'm here to learn. I'm right. not here to just win the debate or like destroy on right. YouTube. <laughs> Emily, this might be too exactly. much of a this might do be too much of a can opener, but um what how do you feel like you are conscious of like being comfortable with the uncomfortable, especially as you're like stepping out of seminary and like into a church and like you kind of already hinted at this on the show before about like how you you feel like there's some stuff that like you kind of don't have uh like certain opinion on. Like how how do you wrestle with that like comfortable with the uncomfortableness that you guys mentioned? Yeah. So, I know 
Well, one thing for sure that I'm deeply, deeply positive of is that we will never have all of the answers. And that's not the Mm -hmm. point of life. Because I just don't see, me personally, I don't see how a loving and gracious God would create us in God's image and say, okay, figure it out, have fun, Mm. and then just leave it to where we're all stumbling to find this supposed right answer. And I remember in seminary, we actually had really good conversation about like, what's the point of all this? Like, why even talk about theology? It's some people consider it to be a dead topic. Like, there's no point. God Mm. doesn't have room in the world. And for me, that reminded me well, my job, like my call as a pastor is to live in this space where I'm not going to have all the answers. And when people Mm. look to me for answers, I can gladly tell them that I don't have everything figured out. And that reminds them and reminds me of this human connectedness that we have with God. And Mm. for some reason, that gives me comfort in knowing that there are just some things I, I still don't have any clue about. You know, we can talk about, like, the Holy Spirit in the Methodist Church as much as we say we love to talk about it. We really don't. And I feel like we don't really know what we're talking about with the Holy Spirit. And so some people just don't want to bring it up. And Mm. because we don't talk about it, because we don't have these kinds of conversations like we're having on Ravel, we don't learn. We We don't get to express our thoughts and our ideas. And so as a pastor... I get the freedom to say, hey, I'm still figuring this out too. I'm mm-hmm. just in the same boat as you are. The only difference is I have a piece of paper that says I'm ordained. Like really, mm-hmm. we're all mm-hmm. theologians mm-hmm. in this case. And my degree and my ordination by my bishop is really the only thing separating me from my congregation. Otherwise, mm-hmm. I would be sitting in the pew with them and we would just be having a, you know, inner sermon dialogue together in the pews, but that's not my job. And so my job to to kind of pull at people and to have these uncomfortable conversations and to say, well, what do you really believe? And, you know, do you mm. feel like this is life-giving theology and kind of unraveling, huh, funny, unraveling hey. all of those ideas. Um, yeah. So that's being comfortable with the uncomfortable is knowing that it's never going to go away. And we can embrace it for what it is. It can be a life-giving moment for us. Man, if that's not a good word, I don't know what is. gravy. Thank you for that, Emily. I (laughs) I think we should just stop there. I I think Ravel is over. (laughs) We had a good run. Well, the 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 episode, not the oh, okay. <laughs> oh man, Emily, that that was so good. I appreciated that so much. I just got back from camping this last weekend, and. I have a journaling practice that I engage every morning, and it typically involves uh, a chapter of scripture and a psalm. And uh, for camping this weekend, I accidentally left my Bible at home, and I had my phone off. I wasn't going to open up the Bible app. So literally, I had a moment where I opened up my journal on Saturday morning, and I was like, oh, no, I don't, I don't have my Bible with me. Where's my gospel reading for the day? And I look up from my camp chair, and it's like this beautiful like blue green slow flowing river right in front like opening itself up to me there's this whole like this valley scene with birds and squirrels and making all sorts of noise like bees were like buzzing around me and it was one of those moments where i just felt like my awareness expanded and it was like 
I have so many questions about what happens in the Bible and I have so many conflicts mm. within myself with like, what is the right theology to believe? What will inspire me to live the best way? And it was one of those things where, you know, instead of putting something like, you know, Acts chapter 14 on the top of my page, I just put Clark Fork River. Like oh, the river gets to be my gospel reading for the day. And oh. I, I just get to learn something about God here. So like when you say we're never going to have the answer to me, it's like, we're never going to have the answer if we insist on putting words and systems around it all the time. What if instead you just try to like wrapped, just try and wrap a loving gaze around it and just let it be exactly what it is. Um, I've been, like I said, I've been reading Richard Rohr. I've also been listening to a lot of podcasts along these lines of everything we have, everything we need is already here with us. And in fact, to bring it back to the prodigal son, that is exactly what the father says to the older son who is, struggling with I've served you this whole time. Like I never abandoned you. I never betrayed you. I never like squandered my inheritance. Mm -hmm. Where's my celebration? And the father says like, I am always with you and everything I have is yours already. You just didn't get it right. Mm -hmm. You just didn't like wake up and grab it or just like you didn't just look up from your camp chair and see the river preaching to you. You know, that's what you got me. That's where you got me, Emily. I, I love it, especially because like creation ultimately is like, well, not ultimately, but it's truly where you can see God at its, like mm. God at its finest. Like there are just mm. so many beautiful, untainted things in nature that we can't even, like, there are so many things, like think about the oceans. There are so many things in the oceans that we still haven't even uncovered yes, right. yet. So really- <laughs> It's just like mind blowing to see the vastness of creation and to know like that's just how vast God is. There's still so much to learn and there's so much to see. And that's I just even I think that's beautiful that you were able to just use the beauty around you to kind of open you up to to journaling and not having a Bible like you don't need one mm. at that moment. Like you can just be present with God in that space and know that it's still just as life-giving as opening mm. a Bible. Right. My goodness. Mm. This is a good one. Good. Josh, do you have anything more on your notes from the, the audio we played before we wrap no, up? No, no. I think we, uh, I think we covered everything that I felt inspired by, mm. by you, wow. you uh, talking. So that was lovely. I think we hit everything that I wanted well, to talk about. Thanks for indulging us Thank then. You. I mean, this was the conversation that started yeah. it all. And now yeah, it just seriously. keeps going from here. I guess to wrap up then, uh, a big thank you to Louis Zong for the use of his song In Full Color off of his album Here. You can find that on Spotify and Bandcamp or pretty much anywhere else music is available. Go jam his stuff. It's absolutely fantastic. Also, follow us uh, at RavelPod on Instagram and Twitter. We are also on Facebook if you happen to be a uh, Facebookian. Um, also, leave us a review <laughs> if you like us. Yeah. Maybe if you don't like us too, we'll we'll take negative reviews if you really hate us, I guess. We still want to know. Apple Podcasts, do people still leave reviews on Apple Podcasts? Is that a thing, Stephen? Apple Podcasts is still ground zero for perfect ratings and reviews. Uh, you can also, if you're not an Apple user though, you could head over to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash theravelpod and leave a re review on our page. That's the way Android users can get in on the rating and review action. And probably most importantly, if you think that one of your friends would like listening to us, we'd be honored if you'd share us with them. Um, we just want this to be a conversation and 
um, if this is a conversation that more people want to be a part of, the more the merrier. So absolutely. We're glad you're here too. Yeah. Also, if you guys want to follow us on any social media, all of us are on Twitter and you can find our Twitter handles in the show notes too. So thanks for listening. We'll, uh, we'll see you guys next week. Mm, love it. I, you know, I enjoyed episode one so much with Emily giving us a benediction. I think we should make this a tradition. Oh yeah. I think we should too. How do you feel, <gasps> Pastor Emily? How do you I'm feel? I'm honored, truly. I feel so good. As we close this time together, just know that we are here in community unraveling and wrestling with our theology together with drink in hand and lovely conversation. 